Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, hey lady, I'll tell you when we cover Adam's Family Values. This week is Adam's Family Values. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Blast Zone. Welcome to The Blast Zone. This podcast is not about bad movies. It's about movies that did badly. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like Adam's Family Values, which we're talking about today. But before we get into that, Ian, how are you doing? Oh man, I'm not doing great. I don't know. My body got tired of the shit that I give it every day. Every time. It, it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's my usual shit talking about myself. It decided to just make me very unhappy today. Oh. But I said, you know what? No, I'm not standing for that. It's podcast day. I am going to take some deep breaths. I'm going to do some stretching. I'm going to do some vitalizing of my internal organs. And now they're ready to go and do a pod. How are you doing? Hell yeah. I mean, I feel terrible. I have a cold, I think, or allergies or something. Mm. I went and got a COVID test just to make make sure I'm not, you know, COVID positive, but no, I think I'm just getting sick. So I hopped myself up on a bunch of medication so that I'd have energy to do this podcast and I'm ready to go. Super hyped. Yes. Got a great guest today. We do. Talking about a fun movie. She is a comedian host of the podcast, Psychic Friends. It's Rosa Escandone. Rosa, welcome. Hi. Yeah. It's Psychic Friends with a Z because we didn't optimize for typing and realize it's a Z at the end. Psychic Friends. How are you doing this week, Rosa? Thanks so much for joining us, by the way. Oh, I'm good. I figured out that I'm traveling almost all through August. This is my one week of being home in the month of August. So excited to be here. Excited to be in a fake podcast studio. So That's right. The virtual podcast studio. Anywhere can be a podcast studio. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't have said fake. An online. (laughs) Wow. The world sure has changed in many ways since 2020. Exciting times. Uh, We're going to end up in an Isaac Asimov story any day now. Oh, they're doing a black mirror. This is all a black mirror, right? (laughs) Yeah. We're going to get the plot twist, but the plot twist is going to be on us or the plot twist of the audience. is technology in this one. What? Can you imagine? So <laughs> wow. before we get into this week's movie, we have a little tradition where we like to do a show and tell about something we watched unrelated to the podcast. So Rosa, what have you watched recently that you wanted to talk about that you thought was interesting? Okay. I watch a lot of straight up garbage. I do need this to be known about me. And I started possibly my favorite garbage TV experience this week, which is a new show on Netflix called My Unorthodox Life. Have you heard of this show? No, this is new to me. Okay, good. You're not prepared for whatever you think this show is. It is about a woman who escaped a fanatical Jewish sect of Orthodox Judaism. And now she's owns a modeling company and her weird kids are setting themselves up to be the next Kardashians. But this family just talks about sex and says a lot about like, wow, it's weird. You guys don't want to have sex because I raised you in a Orthodox thing. Anyway, do you want to talk about vibrators on camera for Netflix? And it is a wild ride. It's like girl boss feminism meets documentary filmmaking. It's one of the wildest experiences I've ever had. This sounds like a wild time. So like the overt sexuality is them making up for lost time. Maybe No, it seems like this mom is a freak. This mom Mm -hmm. wants everyone to know she's a freak and wants her children to be sex positive, but she did raise them in a cult. So they're not sex positive. So now she's like, 
wow, my adult son's a virgin. Better talk to him about it. My right. youngest daughter's a bisexual and I'm going to talk about her vibrator on camera. And I'm like, okay, cool. Just doing a different type of damage than the one you already did. Still damaging, but just yeah, different. Yeah, I mean, part of me is like, it's good that we're open and honest with our kids about sex, but it is weird that it's like a Netflix TV show at the same time. Right. So. They're all like pretty much adults too. Like I think the youngest one is like 20. So thank goodness. Thank God none of them are (laughs) like children. (laughs) Could have been scary. A 20 year old is a child to me, but at least it's not super kooky. Right. Yeah. Yeah, It's not a 14 year old being on TV, having to go through those conversations. Yeah. So that's maybe a bad choice. There's also a motorcycle gang outside my window. Oh man. They are coming after you hard. Yeah. (laughs) They're coming for me. Just like a bunch of guys on Harley Davidson's break down my door. Oh no. Rosa lives above a roadhouse. Like yeah, it's a the roadhouse situation. Movie. I'm going to fight everyone. <laughs> this, this is going to be a constant problem throughout the episode. Ian, what have you got for us this week? I watched something pretty fun. It's called The North Water. It's a joint production of BBC Two and AMC Plus, which you didn't know existed before I just said that. Sounds classy as fuck, yeah. I got it on Prime Video, though. It's like a dark, harsh, and moody, and cold, and chilly character study about this ex-military surgeon who signs on to be the ship's doctor on an 1859 English whaling expedition. And the guy's dealing with some serious demons of his own, but also he's surrounded by some shady shipmates, including Colin Farrell, just chewing the scenery as this really juicy villain that's on the boat with him. And you don't know what he's going to do. I'm only a couple episodes in, so it's really fun. It's very stylish, dark. So far, I'm, I'm digging it and I would recommend it. So we watched Pro- something similar. Yeah, it sounds like same kind of deal. Yeah, kind of same. Props to Colin Farrell. Like he's he's popping up in the Batman later, but then he's also like, I'm going to do this miniseries for AMC2 and the BBC. Like next year, going to see him narrating a nature documentary <laughs> for Animal Planet. He's like, yeah, I'm all over the place. Whatever pays the bills. He's really good. He's real Is there anything creepy. supernatural going on, Ian? Because it sounds a lot like The Terror which was a, I think it was an AMC show from a couple of years ago that I really liked. As yet, it has not gotten supernatural. It's real weird though. It could go anywhere. Violence could erupt or horrible things could happen at any moment. It's that kind of tense. Yeah, I definitely meant to check it out and then I didn't realize it was out already. So I'm going to take a gander at that, but I'm preparing for the return of our number one boys and and girls. I'm rewatching Succession in anticipation of the new season this fall because I just love that show. And I realized I've only seen it once. I watched it as it aired both seasons. So I felt like I was missing some context and it's been a couple of years since season two finished up. So I wanted to go back and revisit it. Rose, are you a succession fan? I have not seen it. I hear it's good. Quite so. Yeah, I should <laughs> like it. I watch so little prestige TV to a point that it's like embarrassing. If I worked in an office, I would have to like quit my job because I do not watch <laughs> enough prestige TV to make conversation with people. You'd just be at the water cooler all like trying to think of anything. You guys seen Breaking Bad? You're like, yeah, 10 years ago. What are you talking about streaming era though that's how it goes now people can watch shows whenever they want catch up on yeah. stuff decades and again, later i led on like a cool call with cool people on a cool movie podcast with a straight to netflix reality show about a horny jewish lady i feel oh, you like run another pod known. you were on another movie podcast that had cool people oh yeah sorry this is my third <laughs> movie podcast tonight and i am using oh. all the same anecdotes so you should get this one out first all right we got to rush this one to print yeah <laughs> so adam's family values i'm excited to talk about this movie rosa what's your your relationship with this movie because you picked this one right off the bat. You said, I'd love to talk about that one. And you seem pretty excited. I'm honestly, I'm a big Adams family head. I'm someone who loves the Adams family. I do have to say, I watched both of 
the movies when I was a kid, but the first one became more of a comfort movie for me like later in life. So I have seen the first one a lot more than the second one. But the second one is iconic in its own way, which I think should be said. I think honestly, though, what got me about The Addams Family was I was a big fan of it as like I've read some of the old cartoons. My mother was a big fan of the 70s TV show. So I think also just as a property, I watched the new one that came out, which is surprisingly good. The animated one that came out two years ago. Surprisingly good. I'm going to watch the Netflix show when it comes out. I think I'm just a big old Adams Family head. Nice. All right. That checks out. Ian, what about you? You know, this stuff was on TV when I was little, the old TV show, not in its first run, I guess. And I was like, not into it. I don't know. John Aston, not feeling John Aston. Didn't want to see his bug eyes and his little mustache for some reason. I was more of a Munsters kid, probably, because I liked Frankensteins and, and where They were overall more popular, I believe, right? The Munsters were more iconic than the first one of the Addams Family. I saw someone arguing the opposite of that today. So I don't really know. Like On the Addams Family subreddit you, uh, you frequent? Yeah. I did do a little <laughs> research for this. And I think at one point I found something that they were listed by something prestigious as one of the most recognizable families in American pop culture and they were up against the Kennedys, which I was like, <laughs> I love this that. isn't just fiction. <laughs> well, the Kennedys just look like a bunch of boring white people. If you saw one on the street, you'd be like, it kind of looks like a Kennedy. But if you saw Gomez Adams on the street, you'd be like, that's fucking Gomez Adams, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true, which is why he became the governor of Massachusetts. Wow. Gomez for Gov. So just to finish my little anecdote there, you know, John Aston didn't like him. Raul Julia absolutely turned me around. I didn't watch these movies until this week because of that, because yeah. of my bias. And then that dude just, oh my God, what a tragic loss. Oh, so you'd never seen any of the Adams Family movies, huh? No, I never I'm watched just any a, of them? I came to it fresh this week. I just skipped them. I was aware of them. I could have probably told you most of the cast because somehow this iconic ensemble that they put together just really got imprinted in that 90s pop culture thing. But I, I avoided actually seeing them until now. Hmm. Now, they were staples of my childhood. Wild to me. But especially this one, I think, because I was like six or seven when this came out. So it was right in the sweet spot for me. I think I was a little young for the first Adams Family. A lot of the jokes went over my head. But by the time this one came out, I was caught up a little bit to its humor. And man, this movie is darker than I remember. Like It's so good and so funny, but there's some fucked up stuff in this movie that I'm excited to talk about. Do you think we should get into the making of the movie and the background behind how it happened? Yeah, let's hear how this thing happened. All right. So... The 1991 movie The Addams Family is fondly remembered now, but it had plenty of bad buzz surrounding it at the time of its production. Budget problems, constant rewrites, health issues for the cast and crew, studio changes and rights disputes plagued the production, but the film was a smash hit upon its release, earning $191.5 million against a reported $30 million budget. Unbothered by the lukewarm critical reception, Paramount, who had acquired the film from Orion Pictures prior to its release, wanted a sequel and they wanted it fast. Gomez, marvelous news. I'm going to have a sequel. Right now. They recruited Paul Rudnick, who had done extensive rewrites on The Addams Family, to pen the sequel and secured deals with the cast and director Barry Sonnenfeld to return. Rudnick was interested in inserting some more social commentary into the movie, titling it Addams Family Values as a tongue-in-cheek reference to Dan Quayle blaming the 1992 Los Angeles riots on a breakdown of family values, and including a summer camp sequence that skewers the way America teaches about the atrocities it committed against Native American people. Finally, a farcical family comedy that tackles the issues. Production 
production was less fraught this time around, with filming taking place between February and June of 1993, and when the movie was released, it received overwhelmingly positive reviews, with most critics calling it a vast improvement over the first, and particular praise being given to Christina Ricci's portrayal of Wednesday Addams. This did not help its fate at the box office, however, as the movie debuted at number one its opening week, with $14 million in box office revenue, but was met with a buzzsaw named Robin Williams in its second week as Mrs. Doubtfire was released and monopolized the family movie market for pretty much the rest of Adam's Family Values theatrical run, limping out of theaters with a $48.9 million take against its $47 million budget. The movie was certainly a bomb for Paramount, but its reputation has continued to improve, appearing on many lists as one of the rare sequels that improves upon its predecessor. Pretty much The Godfather is what you probably should have written at the end. It's like The Godfather, Terminator 2, and Adam's Family Values. Those are the only three. I don't even know if I totally agree of this being better than the first one, but that's not what we're here to debate. I mean, I think so. But again, I have nostalgia associated with this movie that I don't have for the first one. And also, I did not rewatch the first one for this because I ran out of time. And I probably should have. Not to stunt on them with my youth, but I actually do not believe I was born for the release of either of these movies. (laughs) Wow. Nice. (laughs) Congratulations. Do us like that on our own podcast. Yeah, I'm sorry to come here and just break it all, but mm-hmm. I would say I think this is better than Mrs. Doubtfire. I will go on Definitely, the yeah. Mrs. Doubtfire is kind of a messed up movie in retrospect. Like, he's the villain of that movie, if you give it yeah. any, like... Hey, listen, I am a San Francisco kid who has indeed met Robin Williams, but I'm going to throw down some stuff right here. Going to go, go all in on Adam's family values. <laughs> That's why I live in New Jersey now. There Sorry, I, I feel like I'm derailing this. Please go. No, this is good. I think we should have the debate about which is better. I watched them both this week for the first time, and they're not that far apart. Like, I came in already having read people say, oh, the first one sucked. The second one is way better. It's a little bit better, but most of the stuff is there in the first one. And I could totally see if you started with the first one, that would be enough to put that one over the top for you. I have one edit to Adam Family Values that I think would have made it a better movie than the first one. And actually the animated one does, but it is part of the plot. So I don't know if you want me to save it. Yeah, we can get into it as it comes up organically. Uh, yeah, keep that in your back pocket. Yeah, I'd love to hear that, though. Don't forget to bring that up. Yeah, please don't forget that. My script doctoring. I'm a regular Carrie Fisher. I'm a script doctor, a movie that's almost 20 years old. We love almost it. 30 years old. 30, <laughs> almost 30 years old. Oh, that's crazy. I think people's complaints about the Adams family, the first one was just that it spent a lot of time introducing you to the characters and there wasn't enough time left over for the plot, which this movie definitely doesn't bother with. It just assumes you saw the first one and kind of understand the world you're in. So it, it kind of glosses over any kind of character development for the main. Yeah, I love the way it starts, though. I mean, that's my favorite part of the movie. We'll get into that when we go through the plot. But yeah, it just um, throws you into it and expects you to get your bearings immediately. I think that's fine for something like The Addams Family. I have a big issue when rebooted to death kind of things feel like they have to tell me who the main character is. We see this a lot in like the new Superman and Batman movies where it's like you Mm -hmm. don't need to introduce who Batman is. I know who Batman is. (laughs) You could just drop me into Batman and I'm like, yep, the one who's dressed as a bat. That's the Batman. But I know this new movie that we mentioned earlier is going to have a scene of his parents dying. You know, I'm like, Man. I don't need that. I know. I know. If I see it like a string of pearls, you know, like <laughs> dropping to the ground in slow motion again, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. Yeah, like enough I don't need an origin story for things that I've already seen. And I do feel like Adam's Family, like it was a popular TV show. It's already had a movie. It had something like 10,000 cartoons in the New Yorker. I know who these people are. I don't need it. Yeah. So the movie benefits from that. I think just having the confidence to be like, yeah, you guys know who these people are. Yeah. And that'll get to a point that I wanted to 
to make about this thing is that this is a sitcom. I mean, yes, it was literally turned into a sitcom before. It originally comes from a New Yorker single panel comic. But for a movie, even Batman, which is the comic book thing, those people are trying to give heroes journeys and they're trying to have characters grow and change. And like a a superhero in the middle of his life isn't going to change. And so they keep going back to the beginning to try to like get some character development, but there's no development for these characters. This is a sitcom. You go to their house and you sit in their living room and you watch them do the things that you know they do. And you laugh because you knew they were going to do those things. Like that's all you need from this family. Fester's hero's journey brings him back to like where he started is that's the conclusion. So, you know, he's back. (laughs) Right. It just sets the table again for, for the same story to be told again and again. Speaking of the story, Ian, did you want to walk us through the first leg of it? Sure. Let's see what happens in this movie. All right. So Morticia Adams tells her husband Gomez she's having a baby right now. It's a boy. His name is Hubert, and his siblings, Wednesday and Pugsley, aren't too happy about having him around. So they start trying to kill him. Parents hire a nanny named Debbie to help ease Morticia's childcare burden. But unbeknownst to them, Debbie is the infamous Black Widow serial killer who marries men and murders them for their money. She's after Uncle Fester, and he's hot for her too. Wednesday starts to catch on to Debbie's plan, so to get the girl out of her hair, she suggests sending Wednesday and Pugsley to summer camp. Now, the kids hate everything about the cheery camp, except for one reluctant camper named Joel, who Wednesday takes a liking to. With her obstacles out of the way, Debbie's courtship proceeds per her plan, and she and Fester are soon married. Good beginning to the movie. The first 20 minutes, just solid, trying to murder a baby action going on. Honestly, I want to even go back to the first five minutes of this movie, where it's like, I'm having a baby now. They go to the hospital, and it has one of my favorite, like, Something that would be cut from a kid's movie today, because I think that some people are like, oh, The Addams Family is a kid's movie. And I'm like, no, it's absolutely not. I don't think a child should see this movie at all. I saw it as a child. You should not show a child this. <laughs> There's a moment where a little girl is talking to Wednesday about, oh, like babies are coming, come from the cabbage patch and the stork. And, and they're like, how did your parents get your baby? And she just goes, they had sex. And watching this movie as an adult, there are so many moments in it where it's just like someone could just have yelled fuck instead. Like someone could have. <laughs> been in the script and it's yeah i don't think we should tell children about this movie at all that scene was in the trailer too which i was shocked at when i watched yeah. it yeah. they put that one in the trailer my parents had sex <laughs> yeah well and it's almost like it's 1993 parents do not care about just straight up violence and sexuality i guess in their kids movies but i can't imagine if part of the reason i thought this was going to be a bomb is it's it's too inappropriate for kids but it's like no 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 i just missed Mrs. Doubtfire came out at the same time. It's it's nothing about the movie, which is wild to me, you know? Well, it is PG-13, so you have to wonder if Ugh. maybe teenagers thought it was for kids and didn't go see it because they were like, well, it's the Addams Family. I thought that was a kid's movie. And then parents were like, no, you can't go see it. You're too young. It's PG-13 and it ends up in this weird no man's land. Yeah. I think it's it strikes like a really good tone for a PG-13 movie. It's just a hard thing to market for. Yeah, and yeah. it's also, for me at least, it wouldn't work for teenage me, I had to see this movie as a child to love it as an adult on some level, I feel. I think if I saw this as a teenager, I wouldn't like it. And then I'd like it more when I saw it as an adult, like Ian, who's uncultured and just saw these recently. (laughs) But yeah, I do think that I think there would be a disconnect when I was like, oh, that's a kid's movie stuff kind of age. So it's a tight window. It's hitting the Bart Simpson tweens of the 90s, right? Like, but that's so the not Bart Simpson tweens. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> this was a generation that at 12, they would love to hear Wednesday deliver that line and they would giggle. But you're right. As soon as you get up 14, 15, you start to think you're too cool for this. You want to go watch Blue Velvet or some shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then if you go back, then your parents are horrified. 
This movie is so horny. This is so horny. This movie is just everyone's horny in this movie, which is wild. It's all about sex and every scene has the subtext. I would argue also it's queer cinema because someone asks, is it a boy or a girl, Pubert? And Gummo says, it's an Adams. Hi, welcome to my dead talk. The Adams family, also queer cinema. Yeah, yeah, that tracks. There's nothing else queer about this movie. There's a lot Jewish, very little queer, but as a queer Jew, I like to call it out when I see it, you know? Fair enough. That is your prerogative. Gotta like to sneak it in. I mean, Gomez Adams for me is the MVP of this movie. Just a supportive king, great husband, great father, great brother to Fester. I mean, he's- What a loving man. Good guy. You get some, yeah, he's just so full of affection for his family. You get the indication that he might've murdered like a bunch of people. But aside from that, he's just (laughs) an all around nice guy. And the family is so cohesive and like they're functional. They're not dysfunctional within themselves. It's just when the outside world encroaches on them that the dysfunction starts to show. It really is like a nice kind of story about family and togetherness when you break it down to that level. It's warm at the heart. I honestly think when I was a kid growing up, my parents weren't together. My mother is Hispanic. The other one is witchy. I felt very connected to seeing two people I could cast my parents in as like a Morticia and a Gomez and be like, oh, see, it works out for some of them. I think I felt very spiritually connected as like, oh, this is a romance that I get to see as an aspirational romance. And I think I still do till today. They are a good couple. They're one of the few like happy, healthy couples that you get to see in children's entertainment, especially interracial ones. Like you don't get that a lot. Yeah. How refreshing is it that it's not that cliched comedy that the husband is a lunk and the wife has to whip him into shape? Like they don't fight. They're just amazing together. They really compliment each other. They're a good couple. And there's yeah. three kids. They've been married for over a decade. They're still madly in love and in lust with each other. It's kind of the perfect marriage. It's great. And they have the best lines. As much as Gomez was my top dude, like Morticia just gets punchlines. What a cool role that she just sits there and gets these little set of punch jokes that are so sharp. And Gomez is right behind her. He gets a lot of the good punchlines too. But like, they use this one in the trailer too, where Gomez is looking at the baby and he's like, he has my father's eyes. And Morticia's like, take those out of his mouth, Gomez. And it just, <laughs> I mean, it's not funny when I say it, but trust me. It's, when it's uh, Raul Julia just giving a full Shakespearean performance. <laughs> exactly. He's like a globe trained actor or something. And he died right after filming this movie, like really close after it. He was like very sick for a lot of the filming of this movie. And I'm like, he's still like 110 performance. Did not let you see. You, like, yeah, no sweat as Gomez here for a good time, which I think I was always shocked by learning that he he passed away so close after the release of this movie, you know? Yeah, he was dealing with stomach cancer, I believe, a pretty advanced case of it. And he filmed this was not the last movie he filmed. He filmed Street Fighter after this as M. Bison. But this was the last movie released while he was alive. And yeah, his energy level is just off the charts throughout. You cannot tell at all on his performance, like how much suffering he was going through. And it, it really is inspiring. He brings a very theatrical element to his performance. He feels like he's in a play and he's like really playing to the back row. You know, like he delivers all his lines with such gusto. You can't help but watch him every second he's on screen. Yeah. And testament to him and to Sonnenfeld and obviously to the rest of the cast, because everyone sort of played up to that level. Like it's a campy thing. So most of the characters are big and broad and campy and they all rock it. I mean, Pugsley's kind of low key, but that's his thing. So he gets to stand out by being that way. But everyone else is just 
going nuts with their roles and it's great. The, the energy across the whole cast is awesome. We got to talk about the summer camp sequence when they first get there. What did you think of this bright, colorful backdrop for these characters when, you know, it's a real change of pace from what we've been seeing from the rest of the movie and the first movie? It's a good move. I totally see why you would do that because if you just did another movie that took place all inside that house, like this really gives you this B story that has a lot of meat to it. And like you said, it refreshes the color palette and gives you something very different to look at. I, I found that it got tiring after a while. Like it has a fun climax. So we'll get to that one, that part of the movie. But a lot of it is a little bit dragged out to me, but it's better than it would have been if they didn't do a two track AB story kind of movie. I like it. I think it's interesting because I pay a lot of attention when Jewish writers write about summer camp. Movies where a Jewish writer writes about summer camp is like a specific focal point that I always go into. And this is a real weird one because I like it on two levels. So Camp Chippewa is an actual Jewish summer camp in Wisconsin. I don't know if the writer went to it at any point, but I get big Jewish summer camp vibes from this, which is a very specific type of cultural moment that I love. Again, as this is Jewish queer cinema, hi, welcome back to my TED talk. (laughs) I will push that this movie is the Jewish classic. You didn't know you needed, but it has a really interesting thing that they do with sometimes I feel like that this was written to be a Jewish summer camp experience. And some of the time it wasn't like, even having all the kids be bottle blondes is such a, is, I'm like, yeah, no, but I like it because it seems to me that it is a Jew writer writing about Jewish summer camp. And I was like, oh no, we got to make it about privilege and just changed like only half of the lines, which I yeah. love. That's the kind of chaotic energy. Yeah. I, I, no- I noticed that too. And, and then they made the one overtly Jewish character, the guy who doesn't fit in. David Kremholtz. Yeah, yeah, who at least is, you know, coded Jewish in this and his family is. Oh, I think Joel is more than coded Jewish. I would argue. I don't think that actor can play not a little Jewish boy. Yeah. So, yeah, love you, David Kremholtz. This cast is great. I loved especially also Christine Baranski as the oh. summer camp leader. This is truly a kiss perfect cast for me because I love any time she shows up on film. Love Christine uh, Baranski. Great job, Baranski. Peter McNichol from Ghostbusters 2 showing up as the other counselor. I didn't know he didn't actually have that accent from Ghostbusters 2. I thought that's just how he talks, but I was pleasantly surprised. How do you know this isn't the accent? True. Who can say? No, it's not. He he said, just looking him up now, I realized I've seen him in a lot of other stuff speaking more normally than he does in Ghostbusters 2. But yeah, just what like a a murderer's row of comedic character actors in this movie. I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but like Tony Shalhoub just shows up in one scene in a bar. Just to (laughs) fuck off for two minutes and do a throw away. Like, I know he wasn't like, he wasn't monk yet, but he was still on wings by this point, I think. Like, he was still a guy. They pulled out all the heavy hitters for this bad boy. And it it works. I mean, we got to talk about Joan Cusack, too. I mean, the namesake of your shirt. Yeah, no, I do have a shirt on that just says cast Joan Cusack. I know podcasts aren't a visual medium. However, I felt fun. I felt flirty today. And also, (laughs) it's a message I think we can all stand behind. Is that a shirt you had made or you purchased it? Because if you purchased it, we'll put it in the show notes so people can see what it looks like. Yeah, I did purchase it from a small museum that I used to paint for. I don't even know if they sell this online anymore, but their name is... THNK 1994, and it is a pop culture museum that runs little shows, usually in Brooklyn. Found it. This is their shirt. I have done art for them before, and I like them, so I'll say exactly whose shirt it is, but I have absolutely no idea if they sell it or not. They do. Yeah, you can buy it right now. We're going to put it in the show notes, the cast Junk Cusack Moore shirt. But yeah, my daughter absolutely loves Jessie, the cowgirl from Toy Story, so when she heard this voice coming from her TV, she was excited and then confused. 
But she's kind of playing against type in this movie a little bit because she usually plays more of a wholesome character. And she's obviously kind of leaning into that a little bit by pretending to be wholesome for 30 seconds before she drops the facade. So this was fun to see her kind of ham it up in a villainous way. And she's so good at being the villain in this movie. I love Debbie as a character because it's just psychotic enough in almost everything she does. does some real upsetting, sexy line reads throughout this movie, really hams it up. I'm very <laughs> here for it. And also looks snatched. She looks so good in this movie. Yeah, like every scene, 10 out of 10 snatched. So I got to give it up for the girl, you know? Yeah, she's glammed up in this movie. Looks great. Unfortunately, has to do some love scenes with Christopher Lloyd as Fester Adams in this movie. Honestly, but... I don't think that's a drawback. Oh, <laughs> It's an AO. Christopher, Christopher Lloyd, <laughs> can we drop in an AO in the edit? Christopher Lloyd doing a lot of faces and sounds with the Fester character. He's making a lot of big, weird facial expressions. And they really serve to kind of make him repulsive, but endearing at the same time, I find. <laughs> like, Yeah, I intellectually get the endearing, but I viscerally feel the repulsive part more, unfortunately, because I, I love him. I mean, I think he was awesome in this, but I don't lean into the screen as much when he's on it. I'm sure he would take that as a compliment, given the performance <laughs> he's doing on screen. So was there anything else from the first section of the movie you guys had in your notes that you wanted to, to bring up before we move on? Why don't we hear what happens next? All right. So the first night of their honeymoon, Debbie drops a radio into Fester's bathtub, but the electrocution fails to kill him. She realizes she's stuck with Fester for a while, so she forces him to cut off all contact with his family, gives him a makeover, and starts spending his money. At summer camp, Wednesday agrees to join the camp play, celebrating the first Thanksgiving, but when they take the stage, she leads the Native American contingent in sacking and burning the Pilgrim Village. Debbie plants a massive time bomb which destroys their house, but Fester walks out of the rubble. She admits her disdain for Fester and tries to shoot him, but he escapes in a car driven by Thing. We gotta talk about Fester in the wig and turtleneck. In it's this a good look. section of the movie, it is, it is something. Good look. I did um, lean in to get a closer look at the seersucker blazer over the turtleneck. That was nice. Yeah, very Miami Vice of him. Like a Prince Charming from a Shrek kind of wig going on here. Like the yeah, blonde the Bob. bowl cut. Yeah. What did you think of his makeover here, Rosa? I really liked that this movie comes out in 1993. It feels like they went really 80s as a way to be like, he looks bad, which is just like such a funny thing for a movie <laughs> to do where it's just like dress someone in cool clothes from five years ago. I feel like it happens more than you think, but it's such a great own. Like where it's like, yeah, that's what he's wearing. It's like, oh, he looks Terrible. I mean, he has a fake hunchback in this movie. He was never going to look suave and debonair if you put him in a big funny suit. Like, there's a lot going on, a lot of levels here. But that hair is truly, I think, the most unforgivable part. Hair is, it doesn't even look like a toupee. It looks like a wig. Right. Something you get at the Halloween store. Not even glued on. But yeah, you're right. Like, you mean to tell me Barry Sonnenfeld didn't have that outfit in his closet like in 1987? Oh, yeah. Every 80s Hollywood guy had that outfit, which I think is just such a funny way of doing it. I think you missed one important part of their honeymoon and also just like their relationship in general in this part where Fester keeps offering to pay her money. He goes, I'd do anything for you. I would die for you. I'd be tortured for you. I'd pay. And then she throws a toaster at him. He does it later too, where she says, pay me 20 bucks for a kiss. And it's just (laughs) one of the weirdest running gags I've ever even seen in a PG-13 movie. I was honestly distracted by it. I don't know if it's a sex work joke. I don't know if it's just like a weird 90s joke. I have no idea what this joke is, but it was such a weird thing that I like kept coming back where I was like, Was this a thing back then? Did I like miss out on a cultural moment? It was the only (laughs) joke that I still, as a 28-year-old woman, it went straight all over my head. 
the pay me $20 one, that one stuck out to me the way that it really casually dropped in there. But she was at the time hoarding stuff into their new mansion, right? Yeah. She's like putting stuff in, but like with a moving company that he paid for, assumingly. Like it's just such a. Yeah. Like, I mean, they show like she has $2 or whatever to her name when she first moves into the Adams house. So he's definitely paying for all this. Hey, she's the original sugar baby goals. And I respect her for that, actually. I'm team Debbie. You know, yeah, she was just in the wrong era. Like if the internet wasn't around yet, you know, she probably could have done all this without crime. No, I do have to say, I think she has a lust for murder because once Fester doesn't die, he's paying for everything. He's doing everything she wants, right? I feel like she must want the murder component, at least on some level, because she goes through her ex-husbands at one point and it's like, they wouldn't buy me a Bentley. They wouldn't buy me a whatever. You know, that's why I killed them. But no, Fester pays for literally everything she wants. He's here to give her money for ridiculous things and she's still like no and that's why i'm like girl i think you liked the murder part you know oh she's definitely into the murder part she killed her parents because they got her the wrong barbie she was what like 11 at the time i think she says in the movie so there's definitely an element of murder is fun going on in her mind yeah they pile on right at the end to make sure in case you had any sympathy for her plight as a woman trying to make it in the world they're like no by the way she killed her parents as a small child i would say a beautiful jewish woman again they're at the wedding she walks down the aisle to sunrise sunset gotta say you might have uncovered like yeah another level to this movie that really hasn't been discussed before i mean wednesday adams makes fun of girls nose jobs at camp i'm just saying as a jewish woman when i see it i say it I understand it's our culture and I respect her for it. Jewish icon Debbie. (laughs) Speaking of Wednesday Adams, Christina Ricci is just doing it all in this movie. She is crushing it. Like one of the best child actor performances I think I can recall, especially in a comedy. I feel like comedic timing is a hard thing to have. And she's just doing such a good job. Every line she delivers crushes. And it was kind of a happy ending because she grew into a very good actor as an adult as well. So I actually think her and David Crumholtz carried the camp scenes because they're doing a lot to try to save what's kind of a drag part. This movie drags a little bit, I think. They go to the same like get along hut twice in these camp scenes. I was like, yeah, we get it. There's a weird joke about Michael Jackson that doesn't work anymore in one of those. There's like a lot of stuff going on in this movie. Yeah, Pugsley's kind of dead weight in this movie. He's not giving much of a performance, doesn't have a ton of lines. So they can't really rely on him too much to liven up these scenes. And the counselors, McNichol and Baranski, do a little bit of the heavy lifting. But yeah, it really falls on Krumholtz and Ricci in these scenes to make it fun. The main little blonde girl who was also in the first movie, too, is a pretty good child actress. But they don't give her anything to do. Amanda Buckman, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Amanda Buckman, yeah. I just don't think they give this kid a lot to do. She's kind of the straight man to Wednesday. So she doesn't get that many good lines. Like, she's just... Just kind of there to be pushed off things. Yeah, yeah, they need to set her up to be the punching bag because they treat her so badly in the climax of this uh, whole storyline that they need to not give her anything redeeming about her personality. She just has really cliched responses in every situation to be as annoying as she could be. I don't know if they earn burning her at the stake. Like she's not that villainous, <laughs> I think, to justify that ending for her character. It was a funny sight gag, but I started to feel a little bad for her. They also scenes. burn Christine Baranski like over a spit as if they're going to eat the camp counselors. I do yeah. think both were probably like a, not a fitting punishment for the crime. Right. <laughs> they put them on a rotisserie. Yeah. That was rough. Yeah. They were cooking. They had apples in their 
mouths. I guess they all did at that point. Yeah. Wednesday is a vengeful God. She- but then they lighten it up because the parents, what's her name? Amanda Buckman's parents are sitting in the front row and they get old fashioned pies in the face. Launched they got off easy. Catapult. Like that is <laughs> they so. Easy. They could have died on a steak. All right. Yeah. They just did a, like a Larry Moe and Curly <laughs> punishment. We're burning yeah. your daughter at the stake, but here's some banana cream. Like, <laughs> Yeah. I do have to say, I think it would be remiss not to talk about the camp scene the play. I did do a little research just about, they put on this play that's the story of the first Thanksgiving and Wednesday, instead of playing along, talks about genocide in like a one minute monologue. I feel like it's probably the focal point of this movie in a lot of ways. Like it's where the gifts have come from it. Like a lot of the clips that kind of resurface every year are also from it. What are your thoughts? I would love to hear thoughts on this because I'm actually really conflicted about this scene. I think it was ahead of its time. Like the backlash to Thanksgiving, and maybe it was just me being a kid. I wasn't privy to it, but I feel like it wasn't as visible as it is now when you hear people every Thanksgiving rightfully bringing up that it's not this everybody got along and we made pie for each other holiday that that is perpetuated. So I think it was kind of revolutionary in that sense that it, it was probably radicalizing some kids into seeing more of the truth about what really happened. So I commend it for that and for really trying to have some social commentary in this movie that could have been pretty weightless and inconsequential. Yeah. Ian? Your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I felt the same thing. Like, it does feel like that could have been written five years ago and not 27. So I was impressed that this director, that this film took that shot when it clearly didn't have to. It could have just made a dumb thing with gross out gags and and it went somewhere that, I don't know, I applaud him for, for trying it. Yeah, I tend to be on the same side. I did look up a couple of takes from Native authors. Mm. There was a couple online that were just like pro, like, hey, this is one of the best Thanksgiving movies or this is a great Thanksgiving movie. And all of those seem to be at least from white people or people who didn't put tribal affiliation in their, like, in this. So I found two. One is from Electric Lit and it's called Wednesday Adams is just another settler learning to be less isolated on a holiday I can't trust. It's a really beautiful piece by someone named Elisa Washtua, who I believe is from the Cowlitz tribe. And this one's a nice, honestly, I think it's one of those things where it's just talking about what this representation means for people. And is it as good of representation as we could have? It's not like a slam against the movie per se, but like a more nuanced take of like people using this as a way to be like, oh, look at this. But it's it was a good read as well as a National Post article, which has to do with the Canadian tribes, but by a writer named Barbara Kay, who does call out this movie for cultural appropriation and like using this as a joke. Hers is a little bit more scathing. It's called a joking about roasting white racists isn't a way to advanced reconciliation, which is about native tribes of Canada. So I did want to put that in. I don't know my own thoughts on it, but I wanted to at least like, it's a complicated scene. I think it was probably pretty revolutionary for the time, but I wanted to just bring up some possibly interesting native voices. If you want to hear things from uh, not a white lady. Oh yeah, totally. We can put those in the show notes as well. If anybody wants to check them out. Hearing from native voices for this type of scene is crucial. And it's something that I honestly doubt was done when this movie was being made. I'd be shocked if they did consider it or seek that out before they made the movie. I did try to look if any indigenous or native people were involved in the making of this movie. It does not seem to be. I couldn't find anyone yeah. who like would have been a consultant or anything like that. Hollywood was very slow to kind of adopt that. You should have input from the people you're writing about and who gets to tell these stories. It was sadly one of the things that they were very late to adapt. Yeah. And I didn't expect them to, but I was really hoping to not be a downer. It's no, there 
was not. But yeah, I think it took a big swing. And I think this big swing like probably would have been handled differently today. But I do feel like there's something to be said of it certainly feels out of place for a 90s movie. Yes. If that makes any sense. I mean, some of yeah. the depictions of the play aren't great, especially with the kids like with war paint on and stuff. Some of right. it doesn't age great in general. But, you know, I think they took a big swing at the time. I feel like almost any 90s popular movie like mainstream movie is tone deaf to a degree with all of these topics. So yeah, it's never going to be perfect. But like we said, you know, they tried to say something more than just make make a dumb family movie. And I think that's noteworthy. Yeah. Chippewa also does not mean orphan. They say Chippewa means orphan. That is an old Poconos Jewish bit, I believe, of that. Like any summer camp means orphan. Yeah. I read that as just like a punchline, like a throwaway line she was doing. Yeah, that's yeah. not accurate at all. I had someone later in life be like, oh, yeah, that's what it means. I'm like, oh, no, honey, you didn't get it. <laughs> Uh-oh. All right, Ian, do you want to walk us through the last third of the movie? Sure. So as Camp Chippewa burns, Wednesday says a sad farewell to her summer crush, Joel. Meanwhile, back at the Adams house, baby Pubert has become smiley and rosy cheeked <laughs> and Gomez is on his deathbed, both of them suffering terrible afflictions resulting from the family's separation. Fester, Wednesday and Pugsley all return home to everyone's delight. But Debbie shows up right behind and takes some hostage at gunpoint. Debbie wires them all into electric chairs. But in his rejuvenated evil state, baby Pubert turns the tables and Debbie is the one who fries. In the celebratory epilogue, Fester meets a new woman more his speed and Wednesday delights in terrifying her boyfriend, Joel. I'm not certain anything would have happened to them if she electrocuted them because we've seen them survive far worse throughout the movies, right? Fester would have totally been fine. I I wonder about the others. This is where I think my script doctor comes in. Oh, here we go. The only sin of this movie, other than possibly incorrect native representation through a modern lens. I think the only real sin of this movie is that they don't have Debbie and Fester get together. I think that this movie would have been a 10 out of 10 if, because here's the thing, right? What makes an Adams an Adams? Murder. Murder. Yeah. Yeah. Being dark and spooky. Right. Like, I think that I could have been so in love with a movie that just like Morticia splashes a bucket of black paint on her. And she's like, oh, my God, wait, girl, you're perfect. Right. (laughs) I think that there's like a certain thing where it's like a homicidal maniac is actually a perfect Adam stock character. Like half of the extended family is only described as homicidal maniacs. And so to introduce a homicidal maniac and be like, no, this one's the only bad one in this universe, I think is just a wild choice. Yeah, it's a missed opportunity. You're right on. She would have fit in perfectly. Perfectly with the entire family. If she could just be like, her thing is I like killing people and I want money. She is dating an exorbitantly rich man who cannot be killed. Like she can throw as many toasters (laughs) at him if she wants. He's going to be fine. This is a perfect match in so many ways. And they just can't do it because she wears white. Seemingly. I don't understand. So this is my pitch for if I was writing this movie. And so the third movie of theatrical Adams Family movies is the one that came out in 2000. 2018 or 19. And I don't want to spoil this if you're going to watch it, Adam's Heads, as a spoiler alert. But they introduce a character voiced by uh, Allison Janey, who is like a maniacal, conniving real estate developer. And she ends up with Uncle Fester at the end, which I think is a way better take. Like the evil villain ends up being just evil enough to be an Adam's, like after a change of heart, actually works a lot better than him meeting a random bald lady who we didn't get to meet. (laughs) I understand like this is the 90s and we can't have a hot woman end up 
up with an ugly guy unless this is a true sitcom. So I understand that like someone was like, oh no, she's too pretty, can't have a fester. I understand where that was coming from, but it's such an easier ending where like she realizes no one ever understood me. I always wanted this. And Morticia's like, we understand you. And bam, she's an Adams, play the music. It's a mazurka, whatever, right? I just think it's a missed opportunity. So I love that note. I think that definitely could have worked. Here's my counterpoint to it though. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh. I do think that the Adams family warmed up. Every time she got creepy and murdery, they warmed up to her. They didn't go all the way in that, but they played that vibe with them a little bit, right? She would say something weird and they would go, oh yeah, we love that. So, but that was one-sided. And the one thing that the Adams family cannot tolerate is a loveless marriage. And she never warmed up to Fester. And so that's why she had to go. Like in the end, that would have been the hurdle that you, to, to write the other ending, you would have had to figure out how she finds a way to love Fester. And if it was mutual, then she could have survived. Yeah. You know, I think the, the top minds of comedy and screenwriting that we have on this podcast right now <laughs> could have worked that out because that's yeah. a happier ending. You know, maybe it cuts and you don't really know what happens. And then the next scene when everybody's showing up, Debbie's there in all black, like with her arm around Fester. I think that's a lovely ending. Because I think the easiest thing that they set up even earlier in the movie, Morticia goes like murder, death, mayhem, bribery, all that I could forgive. But Debbie, yeah. pastels. So I literally just think if we threw a bucket of black paint on her, <laughs> yeah. it would be enough, like just a bucket of dye and be like, oh no, whoops. That's probably enough, honestly. That's true. She did break it down pretty simple. It was a pastels for her. Yeah. If she just fell into a vat of pig's blood or whatever and came out in a dark <laughs> color, like I honestly think we could have fixed this one right up. I agree. No, that, that's just a great saying. note. And shame on Paramount Pictures for not giving that note to the writer when they were making the movie. I do it's, have to say, have time if they do make a third one because at the end debbie's hand comes out of the grave a la carrie to grab david crumholtz and make him nervous it is a little weird that at the end of this movie david crumholtz or joel his character dresses up exactly like gomez adams to woo gomez adams's child so you know he deserved it he deserved (laughs) being scared i know it's a visual joke but it is so weird that cut to him the baby looks like gomez this kid looks like gomez everyone looks like gomez he's building an army of doppelgangers well, what do you think is going on with that relationship? Because they left it kind of fuzzy at the end. Wednesday says, Debbie was just sloppy. If it was me, I would have killed my husband by frightening him to death. And then possibly she's actually trying to frighten her boyfriend to death at the end there. Does that mean she loves him or does that mean she really wants him to die at the end of that scene or both maybe? It's like a test. If he can survive, then he's worthy. That's how I read it. You know, okay. She's laying down the gauntlet. Can you handle this family? One thing I like about the Adams family, which I think is really hard to do when writing comedy, is each of them agree with each other. They are like a unit. However, each of them has their own personality. And I think it's too easy to make her like a Morticia, like someone who loves her man more than anything. She hates her man. And I respect her for that. She has a different yeah. thing going on. Yeah, she does. It's a, it's definitely like love to hate him, hate to love him. I don't know how to describe yeah, she that. Has, but she's like, what? She's supposed to be like 13 in this movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's how I read it. Yeah, tween maybe. So I'm like, at that point, it's like, yeah, you can be dramatic love to hate him. When she's Morticia's age, she'll find someone, you know? Yeah, and they had a real moment earlier when they say goodbye at the camp. They have a kiss. They actually profess their affection for each other straight out, which I guess is why in the end they have to dial it back, especially Wednesday does. Like I was too emotional for who I am. I have to go back to torturing you. That's the way I show my love. So sweet. 
What did you guys think of tag teams, Adam's Family Values theme song that closes oh out God. the movie? Oh, Wasn't that so theme. 90s? So the crazier thing, originally, I, I believe it was supposed to be Michael Jackson was writing a theme song for this mm-hmm. at one point. But the accusations against him had come out for the first time, like in that time. So for some reason, they kept in the joke of a child screaming at a picture of him, again, possibly too far, but didn't go ahead with this song. So I think probably Womp Adam's Family there it is it was just like them being like oh no we need a song which arguably they should have just said oh we don't need a song That's yeah fine. it feels like this was recorded in 45 minutes before the movie had like the final print had to be in it's the it cheapest knockoff you ever heard but it's not it's not even a knockoff it's the real band i put this on halloween playlist all the time i this is probably on every halloween party playlist i've ever Throne, but Womp Adam's family there. Oh, really? Is. Oh, wow. Okay. So you've embraced Do people it. People are like, oh, I, I love this song. Or are they like, what is this song? I mean, I've <laughs> already played the entire Monster Mash album by this point and just like 20 minutes of spooky sounds. So at this point, they're just like, oh, God, a recognizable thing that is a song. So. <laughs> That's good, though. You're setting them up. The expectations are low and they're like, all right. Yeah, it's a low expectation. <laughs> I can dance to it. But Barry Sonnenfeld, he has a thing for this music, right? So I went back and watched the first movie again. End of the movie. There is nothing hip hop in that whole movie. And then, boom, as soon as the credits come on, there's a bubblegummy hip hop song going. I forgot who does the one in the first movie, but he loves that. And then he goes on and he does it with Men in Black. He does it with Wild Wild West. Of course, he's got Will Smith in the cast of those movies to record the song and come up with maybe better songs. Yeah, they should have uh, made Raul Julia release an original rap. You are right. That's, it was, is that where you were going? I would have loved that. That would have been better. This was like, oh, I love this movie for one hour and 45 minutes and 30 seconds. And then the credits roll. I'm like, oh God, this movie blows. But <laughs> Yeah, that's why I bombed at the box office. People saw. people would, could hear it coming from the theater when they were leaving other movies and they were like, I'm never going to see that movie. I'm going to see whatever that was. Um, it was actually, so the first Adams Family had a song from the most 90s rapper of all time. Do you want to take a guess? Vanilla Eyes. The other one. MC Hammer. Yep. <laughs> oh, perfect. Good guess. He, he wrote the Adams Family Groove for the first movie. That was the credit song. So yeah, Barry Sonnenfeld lo- loves a corny hip hop song over his end credits. That's, it's very specific. Yeah. yeah. It's got Men in Black, Wild Wild West. Well, Get Shorty, I guess, didn't have. It didn't? Okay. I haven't watched it in a while. Are you sure, Jim? Because that one is about the music industry. And if that's the only one he was like, not for this <laughs> one, I am going to be sh- and appalled. <laughs> I will rewatch Get Shorty in the next couple weeks to confirm because okay. I want to rewatch it anyway because it's actually a really good movie. I like Get Shorty a lot. Yeah, nobody really suffered career-wise from this movie. We always like to look into that and see if the the failure at the box office hamstrung anybody. But it doesn't appear, you know, Perry Sonnenfeld went on to be a very successful director. He made some good movies and a lot of bad ones. But I mean, they... Raul Julia barely ever worked again. Oof, yeah. Dark, that's my Adam's family. He made you... Street Street Fighter was his last movie. He doesn't deserve that. He's a great actor. I do have to say, though, I think Raul Julia left a very lasting mark on one thing. He took a role from a white man and made sure that a white man would never play this role again in every other Adams Family post, except for one where John Aston came back to voice a character. I believe it's mm. been a Latino man. He nice. was like, nope, this is what this character is now. Don't worry about it, which you very rarely see. Yeah, he locked it down. Yeah, I mean, he will always be Gomez Adams in my mind. If you ask me to close my eyes and picture Gomez Adams, which yeah. I don't know why I'd be in that situation, but if you did. <laughs> I will. No, I'm, I am glad you did that. I got in a fight with my mom recently. About Gomez? So I made a pair of earrings <laughs> that arguably I should have worn where one is Morticia on one side, one is Gomez on oh, the other cool. side. But I'd posted a photo on like Twitter or something and my mother had commented like, 
not my Gomez or whatever. So I made oh, her no. for her birthday a pair, which was the John Aston, whatever her name is from the 1960s. Oh. And so yeah, close your eyes. Think of a Gomez is actually a hot button issue in our family right now. So. Wow. I did not know yeah. I was stirring up some long held <laughs> resentments, but yeah, uh, I did. She's very supportive. If you're listening to this, Gloria, I'm right. Look. Someone confirmed it. I'm looking into my speaker. I don't know how that would get to her more. I am sorry, Gloria, but I have to side with Rosa on this one. Yeah. Um, Ralph Julia, he's a king, a very critically acclaimed actor when he took on this role that could have been goofy or cheesy and he made it neither. He just really, like I said, theatrical, over the top, but still not a corny performance at all. No. He nailed it. I cannot stress enough how good he is. And Angelica Houston, much more understated. Did you notice how they had her lit in this movie? It's always one stream of light across her eyes and that's it. I thought that was really interesting, unique way to, they did it in the first one too, but just, you know, a little flair like that makes the movie feel special. There's care put into it. It's really cool. And if you talk about actors have to learn how to find their light, right? They have to control their body movements so that they don't step out of their light. She had a light that was literally like three inches tall and she had to keep her eyes in that light and not, so you see her, how much she's sort of keeping herself under such tight wraps to keep the light on her face as she tries to deliver lines. It's cool. And she does it amazingly. Yeah. To have that kind of physical limitation and, and not let it affect her performance. And just, yeah, she does so much acting with her eyes. It's great. So that was Adam's family values. Rose, did you have any closing thoughts on the movie you wanted to provide us with? You have some notes up on the screen and I do want to read one aloud because it gets me. Carol Kane <laughs> plays Angelica Houston's mother, but is a year younger. She was a new, she was new to the role too, right? So there was somebody else in the first one that didn't yeah. return playing grandma that's yeah into the role i i love when carol kane puts on old lady makeup in this era i know she did for princess bride too she was like a young mm-hmm. woman and now her face is finally caught up to what i think carol <laughs> kane looks like no i think this is a great movie a really good movie it gets something very right about the comics of the adams family which i know no one cares about i said oh but the comics like a cool comic book fan it's not it's in the new yorker <laughs> they were all printed in the new yorker i think it gets a lot right about like charles adams who who did these comics what he kind of wanted i think he talked to paul rednick i believe when this movie came out because well hubert does not appear in any comics he was supposed to but the new yorker said it was like pushing it too far it was too inappropriate and i do oh. think that this movie takes that feeling and runs with it like hey how do we make a, a family movie what if we made it just a little too inappropriate to the point that the new yorker would have to cancel it right <laughs> i think that this movie actually captures something kind of wonderful about that feeling and Still not better than the first, but I'll fight you. I'll fight you off. We will disagree on that. But yeah, this movie has audacity, I think is like the way I would put it. It is not afraid to push the envelope. Like we said, a large subplot is just attempted infanticide. So that's not stuff you would see in even a PG-13 movie these days. And I appreciate it. They also kill a- Oh, they bake a stripper into a cake- Right. Oh, yes. This movie is not very kind to sex work or depictions of Native Americans outside of possibly one speech, which possibly should be said. I feel like there's a time and a place for it. But even that we get to have those conversations in a family movie. Right. is a little wild. That's a wild take on this one. Yeah. So the thing that I take away, I love this movie. And so I will encourage people to watch it and watch both of them. If you haven't, like I had not, they're both good and they take you into a little world and it's fun to be in that world. But as my final thought, the thing that I take away that I think when I look inward and say, why do I get something fun out of this movie is that one of the cool characteristics of this family and their love of the macabre and everything evil and deadly is that 
They're so unflappable, even as they're in the final scene, they never stress about being threatened with death. And somehow to me, that's a comforting thing that I take away, like the imperturbable, unflappable nature of this family to stare death in the face like they all do. They're all strapped into electric chairs in the unseen and they're still smiling and having a good time. They are not bothered at all. So yeah, somehow I take this movie as a way to find comfort and peace amidst the horrors that life throws at you. And that's what I got from it. Well said, both. Rosa, do you have anything you want to plug? I'll say this. You can follow me on social media. I'm at Human Comedian on everything, but I post the most on TikTok because I'm a cool teen. Cool. Hey, very nice. Thanks so much for joining us, Rosa. Uh, This was a blast. Thanks again, Rosa, for coming on. We had a great time talking. This was a blast. Zone. To our listeners, our Blastoids, please remember to rate, review, subscribe. If you can do that on whatever platform you listen to us on, follow us on Twitter, BlastZonePod. Shoot us an email, BlastZonePod at gmail.com. Any suggestions for future episodes, any feedback, questions you have for us. If we get enough questions, we might do a mailbag episode. That'd be fun. And tune in next week. We'll see you next time in the Blast Zone. We will see you all next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone.